Good morning. My name is Charles. I want to greet all of you who are here and those of you joining us by video in all the various sites and venues, as well as those watching online or listening to our podcast. Uh, to the Chinese speakers in our congregation, to everyone, welcome to Blackhawk Church. We are very glad you're here. Now, when I'm up here, usually I introduce myself as one of the pastors on the teaching team. Uh, but I also wear other hats uh, here. I'm also the pastor of theology. I am also the pastor of multicultural ministry. So if you're kind of new around here at Blackhawk, you may or may not have heard that we are a church that aspires to be a community of many ethnicities, many cultures, many languages. Um, so for example, we have a, a kind of a thriving Chinese language ministry uh, that includes a Sunday service at the Braderway site uh, in the gym at 11.15 a.m. Uh, the picture on the right, what you're seeing, is actually Blackhawk's Chinese New Year celebration. We are working on starting a, a, a African-American ministry to serve our African-American community. Uh, we have student ministries for um, second generation, third generation Asian-American high schoolers, middle schoolers. And you may have heard we're working on a kind of a multicultural worship venue that blends different types of worship styles. It's called Gospel Fusion, and it will be fully launched in the spring of 2020. So why are we doing all this? Well, we're doing this because we believe the Bible says that this is what God wants. That we believe that this is a critical aspect of God's vision for his kingdom. And, uh, and the passage we're looking at today, it's really where it all starts. Right? Where there's going to be two stories where Jesus begins to give his disciples an inkling that, hey, you know, this kingdom I'm launching is going to be multicultural, multi-ethnic. This is the 13th sermon in our series called the Unexpected Kingdom. And uh, in, in this series, we're looking at a book in the Bible called the Gospel of Mark. It's a story about Jesus, the Son of God, coming among the first century Jewish people to tell them that what they've been yearning for is finally here. Right? God, the creator God of the universe, the God that the Jews worship, has finally begun to act to establish his kingdom on earth through a new Jewish king who's called the Messiah who will one day rule the whole world. However, this kingdom that Jesus proclaims differs, really differs, from what people expect, both in the first century and in the 21st century. Um, so today, the two stories we're looking at, Jesus continues to defy expectations. If you have your Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, we're beginning with verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. Now, we should go to the, if we, if we just stop right there, we should go to the geography here. If you look at the map, um, Jesus usually hang out in the, in, in the kind of the, the Sea of Galilee area. Well, here he travels northwestward to the city of Tyre by the, city, by the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And, and Tyre, you should know from first century geography, is that Tyre is a Gentile city. Okay? So here, Jesus is going to be interacting with a lot of Gentiles. Verse 25. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. So there is this woman that shows up, and she's clearly a Gentile woman. And Mark makes sure you know that, right? She's Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia, right? So this is you no know, loud, blurring siren. She is not a Jew. Verse 
Okay. So let me just give a little background here about you know, what's the deal with this with a Jew-Gentile thing. All right. So Jewish history really starts with Abraham about 2,000 years before the time of Jesus. God calls Abraham and chooses him to, and chose him to be the, the kind of the ancestor of a very special family. His descendants were, were, were called to be the chosen people, and they are called the Jews, and everybody else called the Gentiles. And, and they were called to help God fix a broken world. They were called to really to be a blessing to the Gentiles. That's how it's supposed to work, but things went downhill very quickly, right? The Egyptians used the Jews as slaves and tried to genocide them. They managed to escape, they build their own little kingdom, and that kingdom gets crushed by another Gentile empire called Babylon. And after that, just a string of, of, of Gentile overlords. You got the Persians, you got the Greeks, you got the Romans. Some left the Jews alone, many tried to crush them, try to erase them. So by the time you get to first century, the time of Jesus under the Roman Empire, you have these Jews with, some, with a siege mentality. They would think something like this. Yes, we have very little military power or political power, but we are the people chosen by the one true God. We worship the creator God of the universe. You Gentiles, you worship idols. You worship nothing. And because of that, you don't know what's right and wrong. You do things that are impure. You do things that are way off. We have the Torah. We have God giving us the laws. We know how to live. You don't. And we're chosen by God. We are better than you. We should be in charge. And we're not in charge because we angered our God and he hasn't forgiven us yet. But he will. And that day is coming. That day of the new kingdom of God is coming. And when God's enemies, that's you Gentiles out there, are going to be crushed. We will be in charge, we will take control, and we will run this glorious kingdom. Now, that's how many Jews in the first century saw the Gentiles. Okay? I just want to clarify, that's not true for current Judaism or anything like that. But that was back then a very, 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 very inter interesting period of Jewish history. Now, think about that. Jesus then takes, two, takes, takes his 12 disciples, Jewish disciples, to a Gentile city. What happens after that begins a fundamental transformation in how we understand the kingdom of God. Now, before we jump right in, um, I want to give you a bit of warning because uh, some of you are going to be shocked by this story. Uh, many of you are going to be appalled by what Jesus does. And, um, and I'm going to explain why Jesus does what he does and what he's trying to accomplish, but I'm not going to try to soften this sense of alienation or this is a sense of unease. Because frankly, the Jesus in the Bible does things and says things that offend our 21st century sensibilities. That's as it should be. A Jesus that we always agree with, always approve of, is a Jesus we have invented. The true Jesus, the biblical Jesus, will do things that will push our buttons. So get used to that. So with that bit of warning, let's dive in. So verse 25 says this is a Gentile woman. She, she, has, she needs help. She, she comes, she's a mother. And she, she's like, I got to go to Jesus. She hears about this Jewish rabbi who, who, who there's a buzz about him. He could do amazing things. And, and she says, I got to get there, even though I'm not supposed to be there. Why? Well, it's a gender thing. Uh, women are not supposed to interact with Jewish rabbis in public. It's an ethnicity thing. Jews and Gentiles are not supposed to interact. She, so she's going to break all kinds of social rules, but she doesn't care. 
She's desperate. So she shows up. She makes her way to Jesus. She falls at his feet, and she starts to plead with him. Now, do you remember the last time somebody breaks the rules to get to Jesus? Chapter 5, remember? There was this Jewish woman with a bleeding disease, and she, in public, she goes and touches Jesus. Do you remember how Jesus responds to her? She's on her knees, trembling with fear, and Jesus, what does he say? My daughter, my daughter, your faith has saved you. I mean, that's a Jesus we expect, right? Full of mercy, full of compassion. Ah, surely this is what Jesus is going to do this time. All right. Verse 27. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Huh. So that's not, Jesus doesn't do the same thing. So let's make sure we understand what Jesus is doing. Okay, look at the verse, okay? Make sure we get, we get what's happening here. Um, first, Jesus says no to the woman. She, he says, I am not going to help your daughter. Why? Because food belongs to children, not to dogs. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, everybody in the room would have understood Jesus perfectly. Okay? What Jesus is saying is, my ability to help people, my ministry, that's food. And food belongs to children. That is, God's children. The Jews. Your daughter does not belong to that category. She is a Gentile dog, and so are you. Wow. I mean, that's just devastating, right? Jesus calls his Gentile mother a dog. Now, some people try to save Jesus. They will point out that, oh, in the Greek word for dog in that passage, it's in the diminutive form, so it's actually a little dog, kind of like a cute little puppy. Okay, so, all right, Jesus calls a desperate Gentile mother a cute little dog. So much better. No, 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 there's no way, there's no getting Jesus out of this. You can't save him out of this, okay? It's, it's, it's not possible. It, it, so many of us are thinking, this, is, this kind of behavior is totally inappropriate. If you did something like this in Madison today, you will be fired for most jobs. So like I said, I'm going to explain why Jesus does this, but some of you are still not going to be happy with him. And that's Okay. Jesus is used to disciples questioning his decisions. So, what is Jesus up to? Now, our first reaction is, wow, this is cruelty. This is like racist. But we have to realize that that's not how everybody would have reacted. Not everybody would have objected to what Jesus is saying. The Jews in that room would not have. The disciples in that room would not have. In fact, they'd be more like, oh yeah, you tell her, you tell her Jesus, get that riffraff off your feet. How dare this woman come and touch our teacher, right? Shut her up and get that dog out of there. How do we know that? Because in the first century, Jews called Gentiles dogs. It's their name for the Gentiles. It's an ethnic slur. So, Jew, so Jesus uses an ethnic slur that Jews typically use for the Gentiles and calls this woman a dog. What he's doing is he's vocalizing that Jewish superiority, ethnic privilege. We are more important than you. We are children. You are dogs. And so Jesus puts into words what his disciples are all thinking. And in doing so, he sets up his disciples for a whiplash of biblical proportions. 
Verse 28, Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Let's read this carefully. First, she calls Jesus Lord. And we're like, he just called you a dog and you're calling him Lord? Yeah, because it's not anything that surprises her. I mean, this is the kind of language that she expects from a Jewish rabbi, right? And she expects to be insulted, expects to be humiliated. It's nothing that she hasn't encountered before. Second, she says, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So what she's saying here is this, you know, okay, Jesus, you want to go with that old cliche children dog nonsense? Fine, let's go with that. But even in your story, dogs get the crumbs. I get what I want for my daughter. You see what's going on, right? She takes Jesus' metaphor and she flips it and says, I can use this to plead my case. And then finally, Jesus says, okay, you can go. Your daughter's better. Why? Well, the reason Jesus gives is critical. He says, for such a reply, you may go. Now, there's another version of the story in the Gospel of Matthew where, where, where the focus is on the woman's faith. All right, she has great faith. That's not the focus here in Gospel of Mark. Okay? First of all, it's obvious this woman has faith in Jesus. She wouldn't be crossing social lines and taking insults if she didn't believe in Jesus' ability and his compassion. Okay? But the focus is not on her faith here. In Mark, the focus is on how she outwitted Jesus. Jesus insults her with a clever metaphor, and she comes back with a better one. And Jesus says, oh, wow, nice. Well done. You got me. You win. Right? I will do what you ask for such a reply. Huh. Have you seen anything like this in the Gospel of Mark? I mean, go ahead and read it. You will not find it anywhere, okay? We're going to see Jesus doing some serious public debates in the temple later on, in later chapters. But even before that, Jesus takes on all comers. He takes on the Pharisees. He takes on the, the, the teachers of the law. He takes on the best the Jewish elites has to offer. And it always goes the same way. They argue, and then Jesus pulls out a story or a, or a one-liner that just shuts them down. Jesus always gets the last word. Except here. Here, she gets, he gets beat. He gets beaten by a Gentile woman. The disciples have never seen anything like it. Ten seconds ago, they're like, oh yeah, you tell her, Jesus, get that dog out of here. Ten seconds later, the dog just walked all over their teacher. Jaws drop, mouth hanging open, neck sore from the whiplash. What is going on? To understand what's going on, we need, to, we need to read this story in light of this entire section in the Gospel of Mark. Because the next big story that's coming up is the feeding of the 4,000. And that story is all about including the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. Jesus is trying to teach this, this, the disciples that the kingdom cuts across ethnic boundaries and gender boundaries. There is no ethnic privilege. There is no gender privilege. And to teach that, typical Jesus, he shows he doesn't tell. He uses an encounter with a Gentile woman to teach his disciples. 
Now, I want to make sure you don't, we, we, we note that Jesus isn't just using this woman as a prop and just kind of throws her away. Right? Think about this encounter from her perspective. She walks into a room. She kneels down in front of a Jewish rabbi. She debases herself. She's asking for mercy. She's expecting the typical bigotry of a haughty Jewish rabbi. She walks out triumphant because the rabbi says, I'm not doing this out of pity. I'm doing this because you outwitted me. She walks out elevated in front of the eyes of every single person in that room. She is exalted. In exalting this Gentile woman over himself, Jesus befuddles and discombobulates his disciples. For them, the proper order of the universe has just turned upside down. A Gentile woman got the better of our teacher? What does that mean? And that is precisely the question that Jesus wants his disciples to be thinking about as he shows them the next big miracle, the feeding of the 4,000. But before we get there, let's, uh, let's do a little more geography. Uh, verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. And uh, if you look back to the map, Tyre is up top, traveling to the Sea of Galilee and finally to the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, the region of Decapolis. And you need to know first century geography, Decapolis is also a Gentile region. So Jesus leaves one Gentile region and goes to another one. We're going to have a healing story we're not going to look at, and then we're going to have the feeding of the 4,000 happening in Decapolis. Verse 1, chapter 8. During those days, another large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but we're in this remote place. Can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, some of you are thinking, I think I heard this story before. You have, you have, okay, it's, it's not deja vu, you actually have. This is almost exactly the same story as the feeding of the 5,000 back in chapter 6. And we talked about this two weeks ago. The details are almost identical. You have a crowd with Jesus in the wilderness and they need food. You have a conversation between Jesus and the disciples about loaves of bread, how many, is that enough? And then they all get fed. Uh, the only real differences are the, are the numbers, the number of people, the number of loaves, and the number of baskets left over. And by the way, people have all kinds of theories about the meanings of those numbers. You can't prove them. You can't disprove them. Mark doesn't tell us. But the question we should be asking is this. Why does Mark tell the same story twice? The answer? We're in Decapolis. This is a Gentile crowd. That's it. Okay. 
That, 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 that difference is everything. In chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 Jews. In chapter 8, Jesus feeds 4,000 Gentiles. What's the big deal, you ask? Well, remember two weeks ago what I said about the feeding of the 5,000, right? That Jesus, in doing that, he's reenacting this critical story from Israelite history, the story of the Exodus. Quick overview, 1,500 years before Jesus, God rescues his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and take them into this this area of the wilderness, and he provides food for them for 40 years. And what we said was, Jesus, in doing that, he's reenacting that story, and he's really teaching his disciples, hey, I am the creator God of the universe. I am the Jewish people's God. I am providing for my people in the wilderness. I'm getting them ready so they can enter to the promised land and begin the new kingdom of God. That is the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. So, What about chapter 8? Well, it's the same story with a different crowd. Think about that. Jesus reenacts the story of the Exodus with Gentiles. Message to the disciples. Listen up. Gentiles are invited into the kingdom of God. And if those of you who are reading closely, you might have noticed the connection between the story of the Syrian Phoenician woman and this feeding of the 4,000, right? Jesus said to the, to the woman, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, what was metaphorical in Tyre is now literal in Decapolis. Jesus is giving out literal bread. In chapter 6, he gives them to the Jews. In chapter 8, he gives them to the Gentiles, freely without reserve. Not just bread. Jesus is handing out the legacy of the Jewish people, their cherished history, the story of God providing them for them in the wilderness that Gentiles now partake. They are part of that story now. And so Jesus invites the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. But for the first century, for the disciples, This is insane. This is really, really difficult concept to grasp. How could this be possible? How could God bring those people in? And so though Jesus tried to teach them, it took the disciples decades to to work this out. It was a struggle. How can Jews be part part of the kingdom? I mean, sorry, Gentiles be part of the kingdom. And how don't they have to become Jews first? And this was the most controversial, controversial issue in the early church in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. They fought over this. They had big debates. They had big meetings. They, had, they, they were dissension, character assassination. Things got ugly. Right? You have to know that to be able to read Paul's letters, such as Romans or Corinthians or Galatians. But eventually, they figured it out. Membership in the kingdom is not based on ethnicity, not based on nationality, not based on geography, not based on your family connection. It's based on how you as an individual respond to Jesus. Anyone can follow Jesus, anyone. And in this kingdom, the boundaries are destroyed. There is no ethnic privilege. There is no gender privilege. There's no class privilege. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says this in Galatians chapter three. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Christ, you partake in the Jewish history. 
the history and the legacy and the heritage of the people of God. And the early church, they, they took this seriously. This was not theoretical for them. They, most of the churches in the first century, they were in these cities in the Roman Empire. And these cities were incredibly diverse, teeming with people from all over the place. Most of them were captured by the Roman army as the empire expanded and brought to the city as slaves. So you had people from Europe, Asia, Africa. And so these churches were multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-language churches. They didn't separate, okay? They didn't do a, hey, here's the church for the Jews, the church for the Greeks, the church for the Parthians, the church for the Syrians. They didn't do that. They stayed together because they took the idea of one king, one body, one kingdom seriously. They said, hey, we have to be physically together to do life together in order to live out this vision that Jesus gave us when he first elevated a Syrian Phoenician woman over himself and fed 4,000 Gentiles in the wilderness. The early church got this. And then other things came up, and then we forgot. I think today, most of us would say, oh yeah, of course the kingdom is for everyone. But we don't really live that out. We say we're all one in Christ, but we tend to live and do life separately. At Blackout, we want to be a community where different peoples can come together as one body. We want to create space where each people can manifest their culture, but we also want to create space where people can come together and learn from each other and, and, and do life together. Because we're convinced that every single one of us, every single one of us, we read the Bible and we see God through our cultural lens, which means we have a distorted view of God. And the only way to fix that is when we get together with other peoples with different cultural lens and we start learning and hearing each other so that we can see God more clearly and see more clearly God's vision for his kingdom. So let's talk next steps. There are a lot of possible next steps for our community, for individuals. I want to highlight one that flows out of this passage. Uh, one verse in particular. Chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus left the place and uh, went to the vicinity of Tyre. You're thinking, what? <laughs> That's a very simple verse. People usually ignore it. But the simplicity of that verse belies the significance of that decision. Jesus walks away from a place where he is in the cultural majority, where he's in the ethnic majority, and he goes to a place where he is in the minority. And in so doing, he crosses geographical boundaries, he crosses political boundaries, he crosses ethnic boundaries, he crosses cultural boundaries, and eventually he crosses gender boundaries. To follow Jesus means to cross the boundaries that the broken world has imposed on us. This broken world separates us into groups of people, tribes, and tries to convince us to hate, to look down on, to fear people who are not in our group. To follow Jesus means doing what Jesus does. That means to cross boundaries. A simple challenge. I'm guessing most of you know a person, a fellow classmate, maybe a coworker, and you're a neighbor, somebody who's from a different cultural, ethnic background. I challenge you to move toward that person. Don't be pushy, okay? Don't be like super aggressive, okay? But Here's the thing, what I've discovered is that 
If you're willing to listen to people, people find that irresistible. So ask questions. Be willing to listen. Be really willing to listen. I mean, not listen waiting to talk. Listen. You know who I'm talking about? Some of you know. Okay, I'm not saying we do, anybody does it here. I'm just saying that we all, all know people who do, do do that. Okay, and that applies to all the sites and venues too, okay? Yeah, okay, nobody here does that. Uh, listen, ask questions. And be willing to, not just, not just always exp- getting people to, to a space where you're comfortable. Be willing to step into space where they feel comfortable. Right? That way you go beyond listening. You start seeing and experiencing. We need to be a community that crosses ethnic cultural boundaries. Otherwise, our Sunday morning is just gonna be a photo op. We can take beautiful pictures on Sundays and not know each other Mondays through Saturdays. We want this place to be a place where we do life together. Let me pray for us. Father, we we look at this story and sometimes we forget very quickly. We, we tend to identify with the disciples, but we're actually the Gentiles in the story. We're actually the Syrian Phoenician woman on the outside looking in. And you elevated us. You, you brought us in. You opened the door for us. And for that, we're grateful. And what we want is to, for that open door to extend to everyone. We want that vision you have of this multicultural, multi-ethnic community here at Blackhawk. And so we pray for your help, for your spirits leading, for individually crossing boundaries. Help us, and we pray in, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.